0: The other day, my daughter brought in the mail, and uh, right on the top of the stack was an envelope, and through the uh, window in the envelope, it said, Chris Rudell of 3839 Sheldon Place has won five million (laughs) dollars. Whoa, time uh, to get that new car, start the wing on the church that we're going to add on, and... And you know, my daughter's eyes were about this big, and her heart's racing, and she says, you know, did we win? And I had her open the envelope and read the fine print that you couldn't see through the window. It said, Chris Rudell, 3839 Sheldon Place, is the winner of $5 million if he has the winning numbers. You turn it over and read the odds on the back. It's 1 in 195 million. And that's about the odds of China beating the dream team or Shaquille O'Neal winning the uh, rhythmic uh, gymnastics or something like that. It, it ain't going to happen. And in life, it is important to read the fine print. Uh, that's why we have lawyers. They're professional fine print readers. Because if you don't read the fine print, you can not only be disappointed, you could be in real trouble. I remember a young man who thought he had made the deal of his life on a car, thought he had out-negotiated the car salesman. I mean, there was no down payment. The monthly payments were unrealistically low. He thought he, it was the deal of his life until the lease period ended and he discovered he had an $8,000 balloon payment to make that he uh, didn't have any money for. So he was in trouble. And I don't know whether he was uh, careless and didn't listen or uh, whether the salesman was uh, less than honest and misrepre- misrepresented the uh, arrangements. But if he had read the fine print in the contract that he signed, he would have known what he was getting into. And listen to, to any talk radio, listen to any attorney, listen to your smart uncle. Never sign anything without reading the fine print. In fact, any uh, salesman or businessman who tries to get you to sign, he says, oh yeah, just sign. You don't need to read that. It's just standard. You know you're dealing with a crook. You know you're dealing with somebody who's trying to take advantage of you. Well, God is not a crook. He is not trying to take advantage of anyone. He wants you to read the fine print. Last week I told you all that you were invited to the feast, the feast of salvation, uh, uh, of of knowing Jesus Christ and having your guilt removed, the feast of living for Him and enjoying the joy, the peace, the satisfaction of of a relationship with Him, of His love, the, the, the feast of heaven, ultimately. I told you that that is a feast that is by invitation, only. You can't earn your way in. You don't pay a thing. You can't buy your way in. Well, see, that's all true. But there's some fine print. And Jesus wants us to cover that fine print, to know what it is we're getting into. See, everything I've said is true. The invitation is without payment. You cannot buy it. You cannot earn it by being good or moral or decent enough. But it isn't true that it is without cost. It will cost you absolutely everything you are and have. It will cost you your life. Let's take a look at what Jesus says. Luke 14, that's where we ended last week, finished through 24. So we're going to pick up on verse 25 this week. Listen to what Jesus says, Luke fourteen twenty five says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. When Jesus sees these large crowds following him, he knows they don't have a clue what they're getting into. I mean, they're excited about the crowds. They're excited about the excitement. They're excited about this new leader. But Jesus realizes that they haven't considered at all the cost to them personally of becoming one of his followers. So Jesus, who is absolutely honest, tells them, what it's going to mean. The first thing he says is that to truly be his disciple, one has to hate his mother and father and brothers and sisters and wife and kids. I mean, basically your closest family, the people that you love most. Now, this is hard stuff. I thought the Bible said we are to love people. Now I'm supposed to hate people, especially those that I love the most, You know, this is all very confusing. But let me tell you what's going on. Later on in chapter 16, Jesus will use the same uh, speech, the same words and terms and language to talk about the reality that you cannot serve two masters. And the way he put it there, he says, you'll hate one and love the other. And then to clarify, he restates it in different terms. And he says, literally, you will pay attention to one and ignore the other. See, Jesus uses the, the terms love and hate as powerful emotional terms to describe who you will listen to, who you will concern yourself primarily about pleasing, who you will obey. See, it's not intended to describe. Uh, feelings of animosity or malice towards somebody, like you want to hurt them and harm them. What he's talking about is that for those that follow him, what matters is pleasing him. Even at the cost of displeasing others, family, people I love, people I live with. What matters is obeying him even at the possible cost of my relationship with them. Those are are, are what he is describing. That my commitment, your commitment to following Jesus will mean that you obey Him regardless of how anyone else feels about it. Loyalty to Him, commitment to Him, obedience to Him will not be compromised by anything anyone else says or does. That's what he's describing here. I want to let you in on a little secret. If you put your love for Jesus first and care primarily about what he calls you to do, what he asks of you, what he tells you, you will effectively love your family. You'll discover that your Lord, whom you're obeying, directs you and empowers you to love your mother and father and wife and kids and brothers and sisters that he will give you the ability to really love them, not just go along with with, with what they 're doing, but give you the courage and fortitude to not just feel warm fuzzies toward them but to really seek what 's in their best interest see that 's what love really is seeking someone 's best, and as you place the Lord first because he is love. He will direct you and empower and show you and teach you how to love like that. But if you put your family first or anyone first or anything first above your love for Jesus, you'll find that your ability to love others is compromised. You will not effectively nor honestly love anyone else. Your behavior, your attitude will ultimately be destructive. Your love will turn unhealthy. It will not only be unhealthy for you, but the way you act will be ultimately damaging for the people you claim to love. So it's that clear. It's that simple. If you put your love for Jesus first, in obedience to Him, submission to Him, empowered by Him, you will effectively love your family. You put your family first, And you will not effectively nor honestly love anyone. It's as simple as that. So what does this look like in real life? Let me give you a parenting example. Let's say you've got a teenager. Your teenager thinks you are relatively cool for an oldie. They uh, like you, kind of. They... uh, accept you into their life and share some things with you and you feel like you're connecting pretty well. But then something comes up. They're doing something that is wrong. Your Lord begins to show you that as their parent, He wants you to confront that and and, and to discipline them. Well, what do you do? If you discipline them, they're not going to think you're cool any longer. They're not going to like you. In fact, they may resent you and reject you and cut you out of their life. You may lose them. So what are you going to do? Well, what Jesus is saying here is that if you want to be truly his follower, you will do what he is calling you to do, regardless of their reaction, regardless of how they respond. You will, in that sense, hate them. To love him. Now again, we know that's not hating them. Because that is what is best for them. That is what is good for them. But you will do the right thing. The thing Jesus calls you to. Even at the risk of losing your relationship with him. That's what Jesus is talking about. But you see, to do anything less is selfish. It's a a selfish focus on what you may lose rather than a loving concern for what is truly best for them. Jesus calls us to hate others in order to obey Him. Ultimately, we know that that is a call to truly love them and effectively love them. This isn't selfishness. This isn't putting your needs first and saying, forget about them, disregarding their needs, saying, I've got to do what's right for me. Too bad how that affects the kids or my parents or, or, or my wife or my husband. Now that is raw selfishness and sin. It's not what we're talking about here. Unfortunately, that's what's often promoted these days as healthy. It isn't. What we are talking about is saying, I've got to do what my Lord calls me to do. And I know that because he is love, that even though that feels pretty lousy right now, ultimately, this is the right thing. This is the loving thing for me to do. That's what we're talking about. This is hard stuff, especially when we are accustomed to relating in our families in certain unhealthy ways, and all families have unhealthy ways that they relate. That's Part of being a family and sorting that out. I'm not just talking about families that are really messed up. I'm talking about your family, all families. It's the way it, it, it works. I've heard family described as a mobile, where you know those things with the bars that hangs on a string, and everything is kind of in balance. Uh, there, there's a, uh, a kind of an equilibrium in the way. People behave in their, their relationships, how they relate, how they act. Even though not everybody may like the way it all balances, may, may not be happy with it, everyone knows what's expected of them and how to keep from upsetting the whole balance. But what happens when you make the decision to truly follow Jesus Christ, to, to become truly His disciple, And he begins to put his finger on attitudes and on behavior in your life and on ways of relating that are unhealthy. As soon as you start letting him change you, letting him call you to repentance, to turn away from from those things and to change the way that you relate, the way your attitudes, your, your behavior, as soon as that happens, you begin to throw the whole thing into imbalance. It becomes chaotic and frightening and everyone's going to try to do their best to stop you. To say, stop causing problems. Stop being a troublemaker and you will feel like a troublemaker. You're upsetting the whole family. You are hating the family. Well, what your Lord is calling you to, when He calls you to repentance, to turn away, to let Him change you, he is calling you to hate your family in that sense. But again, the secret, if the Lord is in it, this is the best thing that you can do for your family. As upsetting as it is to the whole balance of things, as upsetting it is to your husband or to your wife or to your parents or to your kids, as lousy as it feels at times, as unloving as as it may feel at times, it is the right thing if that's what your Lord is calling you to do. It is the loving thing. And to just leave the family hanging in an unhealthy balance is to ignore your Lord and to condemn your family to less than what's right, what's good, what's, what's healthy. Again, let me stress that this isn't just the abusive family, the alcoholic family. This isn't even just the unbelieving family. This is all families. This is your family and my family. One of the reasons that healthy families go through periods of time of stress is that one or more of the people in it are changing, hopefully growing. It can be a result of selfishness and sin. People saying, you know, I got to do what's right for me and forget the family, and that's wrong. But even healthy change is upsetting. It upsets the balance. And My wife, Becky, as she walks with the Lord and and goes deeper in her relationship, he begins to put his finger on on things in her life that he wants to change. Almost invariably, my initial reaction is to be threatened. Somehow, her change feels like a personal criticism of me and the way I relate and the way I do things. The fact that she wants to change things must mean there's something wrong with things and that must be my fault. And without meaning to, I put all this pressure just to stop. You know, stop. Let's just live like we always do. Don't do this. It's just upsetting things. Fortunately, Becky is a true follower of Jesus and she's willing to hate me To love her Lord. As a result, she loves me. It's not that she doesn't care how it affects me or how I feel. In fact, sometimes my being hurt makes it very hard for her. But she is willing to hate me in the sense that Jesus is talking about. In order to follow what the Lord is calling her to do. And ultimately, that is the most loving thing she can do for me and the family. And as I confront myself and have the choice to follow Jesus. And to look at the things in my life that are causing me to to be frightened and react. I am so grateful our family has a chance to grow healthier, uh, our relationships deeper. See, that, I think, is what God is calling us to. He's saying that uh, we're called to walk through the mess. It isn't pretty, it isn't fun, but it's how it all works. Bottom line that Jesus wants you to face... Is said, if you truly want to be His follower, you've got to walk through the mess. You've got to be willing to obey Him, even at the risk of losing your family or the relationships there. You've got to follow Him, obey Him, at the risk of losing absolutely everything. When He uses the picture of carrying your cross, He's talking about going to your death. You've got to be willing to lose your life. You know, in a lot of countries of the world, even today, to choose to follow Jesus is to risk being killed. I've had firsthand reports from field staff of ours in, in other countries of people they have actually worked with who've been killed by family members because they followed Jesus. Now, it's not real common here in, in America, but you're, you're putting at risk everything of significance in your life. You're putting at risk your job. If you choose to follow Jesus, there may be some uh, practice at work that's unethical that you no longer can go along with. You don't want to put anybody else down. You're not, honestly, not trying to be critical of other people, but the very fact that you won't go along with it feels like criticism. And you may be excluded. You may even be fired. Every significant area of your life is at risk when you choose to follow Jesus. Jesus wants you to know that up front. He wants you to know that going in. There is no bait and switch. He is telling you right up front what you're putting at risk. And he says, if you aren't ready to lose everything and end up with nothing but Him, if you're not ready to obey Him at the risk of everything else, then you aren't ready to be His disciple. And that's tough stuff. He goes ahead and gives a couple of of stories to kind of bring out the logic of this. Verse 28, he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost and see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one that is coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear this. Hey, Jesus' first story is about uh, building a tower. And he says, basically, you wouldn't go out and build a tower without thinking through whether you had the money to finish it. Otherwise, you've got this half-built tower sitting on your property. And everybody who goes by is going to see that tower and say, what a fool. He started to build it and he couldn't finish it. And there's going to be a testimony to to your foolishness. Sitting there for everyone to see. You're going to feel silly. You're going to feel foolish. And he says, well, in the same way, before you decide to become my disciple, consider the cost. Think through whether you're willing to, to uh, live with the consequences of that. And when's the last time anyone tried to talk you out of becoming a Christian? Somebody ring your doorbell, may I talk to you about not becoming a Christian? And it doesn't happen. But here's Jesus essentially doing that. He's saying, listen, I want you to think about it very carefully before you make this decision. Because I don't want you to make a halfway, half-hearted decision. He says, I want you to count the costs. Well, what are those costs? Well, to choose to follow Jesus, there's going to be all kinds of costs. You know, maybe uh, you're going to have to give up your hatreds and your bitterness in your life. You're going to have to forgive people who have profoundly hurt you. And right now, you probably think of several people you just don't want to forgive. If you uh, choose to follow Jesus and right now you're involved in, in an immoral relationship or an unhealthy sexual relationship, that's going to have to stop. And maybe you're used to treating your husband or your wife selfishly as a means to an end rather than really loving them and seeking their best and their development. Well, that's going to change Maybe you're used to cutting corners ethically at work or in your taxes or in some area. That needs to stop. Maybe you abuse some substance. You're going to have to face that. Maybe you're uh, used to, to avoiding conflict at all costs and just going along with things. Well, that will change. Maybe you delight in that little juicy tidbit of gossip at work or in the family. That will change. Things will change. There will be a dramatic call to obedience. That's hard stuff again. Now don't get me wrong. These things don't have to change for you to accept the Lord. As if you you have to get your act together in all these areas before He accepts you. Or that somehow you have to earn his, His invitation. That's not what we're talking about here at all. It doesn't work that way. He paid for your salvation. He paid for for your relationship with Him so that you could follow Him. He paid for all of that on the cross. He accepts you just the way you are right now. But if you choose to follow Him, He will change things in your life. He will show you things that you are doing wrong. He'll put them in front of you and ask you to turn away from them. Then He will give you the strength and He will show you how and He will bring people around you to help you in that process, other believers, other resources. And you'll be called to turn away and to walk away from these things that may be a very important part of your life that you don't want to give up. In that process, you'll lose other things. You may lose old relationships. People who are used to you doing stuff with them that you're not doing anymore and they don't want to hang around. You you may lose, like I said, your job. You may lose relationships with family members and it will hurt. What Jesus is saying, I want you to know this before you get into it. I want you to know this up front that if you choose to follow me, it's going to cost you. Because otherwise, you might say, oh sure, I'll give this a try. You decide to follow Jesus, but as soon as it gets hard, as soon as it, you start losing, as soon as it hurts, you say, I'm out of here. This is not what I signed up for. And you look foolish. You'll have told people, I'm going to follow Jesus, but you only go halfway. It doesn't last. Quite honestly... In my own life, this was one of the things that kept me away from the Lord. This is is probably one of the biggest impediments why I resisted the Lord as long as I did. See, I had a lot of friends who got saved. And they'd tell me about it and how their life had changed. And I'd kind of chuckle to myself and say, well, this one I'll give about two months. This one I'll give four months. Sure enough, they'd be back doing the same stuff I was doing. Nothing had changed. And as I begin to feel God's pull on my life, I said, I don't want to be like these guys. I don't respect that. I don't want to be laughed at like I laughed at them. So I resisted. I said, no, thank you. Take a look at the second story. The other story is about a king who is being attacked by a superior army. And he's got to try to figure out whether he can resist. You see, the first story is... Count the cost of following Jesus. The second story, the point is count the cost of not following Jesus, of resisting Him, of saying no thanks. It's important to count the cost on both sides of the equation, to look at it from both angles. Not only should you count the cost of following Jesus, but you need to count the cost of resisting. Well, what is the cost of resisting? The cost of resisting Him To lead an ultimately unfulfilled life. And to be enslaved by one sin or another. The cost of of resisting Jesus is to set severe limits on your ability to love the people you claim to love. To cut yourself off from the resource from the one who is love and can show you and empower you to love them. To resist Jesus is, is to... To live a life that just doesn't ultimately add up. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And you cannot make it fit your theory or your system. To resist Jesus. To live a life where even the pleasures, uh, the joys, become empty and wearisome. Where people and things that were once so precious and valuable to us, they lose their luster. They lose their excitement. And we either resign ourselves to, to living with it. Or we discard them to get other people or things that we hope will be more satisfying and as a result it's a lonely existence. To resist Jesus is to live with a contradiction in your heart, to know you're not doing what you should be doing and that contradiction causes you to be dishonest with yourself. To resist Jesus ultimately means to cut yourself off for eternity from the one you were created to love. The source of joy, peace, and satisfaction. So to resist Jesus ultimately is to spend eternity in hell. You see, the cost of resisting Jesus ultimately is far too great to tolerate. It's important that you look at both sides of the equation, that you think it through honestly and as objectively as you're able. See, that's what Jesus wants. He wants you to look at it and make a decision. Go one way or the other. Don't just drift back and forth. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about saltless salt. I mean, that's an absurdity, saltless salt. But that's no more absurd or useless as an unbelieving believer, or a not following follower. You see, drifting ends up there in just an unhappy contradiction, an ineffective life. Now He's calling us to choose a direction. For myself, as I considered the cost of not following, I wasn't thinking in terms of this passage in my own life, but I was aware of the cost of not following Him. I was aware that I did not want to spend eternity in hell, and I did not want to spend my life in the frustration and contradiction that I was experiencing. So even though I was afraid of the costs, even though I knew that it was an all or nothing, a winner take all, and that if I was going to, to follow Him, I was going to follow Him all the way, I capitulated. I knew He was tougher than I was that he was going to win eventually. And so I gave in. I looked at the army with 20,000, said, I can't resist it with my 10. It's not going to happen. I better deal with it now. And even though there are times when I wonder about that, there are times when I wander from that, I don't regret that decision. I realize now that looking back, that everything that I've had to give up, I don't want. Anyway, it's the stuff that was holding me back and holding me down and keeping me from joy and from love. I didn't know that up front. And I still don't believe that when God's prying my fingers off some other thing in my life. I still struggle as if that's my joy in my life. But once it's gone, I say, thank you that it's gone. So I look back and I don't regret that decision. I'd make it again today. And every time that I have reconsidered, and there have been several times in my life when I've reconsidered, I come to the same clear con- conclusion. If you want life, you've got to follow Jesus. Now let me take a slightly different tack, just real briefly. As we were studying this passage in staff meeting, this uh, actually two weeks ago, uh, Jackson made a couple of interesting observations. He noticed that in both of these stories, the... Uh, the people involved didn't have the resources to pull it off. The the, the tower builder didn't have what it took to build a tower. The, The king didn't have what it took to defeat the other army. And the reality is, you and I don't have what it takes. You see, following Jesus doesn't mean we marshal all of our resources, all our strength and our fortitude, and we charge out there and live the perfect life. It does not work that way. Being a follower of Jesus is recognizing that we don't have what it takes. That we need to turn to Him for His resource, for His ability, for His wisdom. It's recognized we don't have the wisdom to know how to live this life and to be loving in the process. And so we, we listen to His Word. We submit ourselves to what the Bible says above what we think, above how things seem to us. We recognize we don't have the spiritual wherewithal to change ourselves. So we submit ourselves to Him and ask Him to change us. And we listen to Him as He does that. We obey Him in that process. We turn away from the things He tells us to turn away from and toward the things that He tells us to turn toward. We believe that He is able and willing to change us. And we accept those changes as He brings them about. See, the dying that Jesus is talking about when He says you have to take your cross, the dying that is necessary to become a true disciple of Jesus is the dying to the insistence that we do it ourselves. Letting that go. Turning our lives over entirely to Him. We give it up and give it to Him. Now, I talked at the beginning of our time together about reading the fine print. I had uh, told you that we are invited to the feast. The feast of, of salvation. Of knowing Jesus. Being freed from from guilt in our lives. The feast of, of living for Him and enjoying His peace and satisfaction. Enjoying intimacy with Him as we walk through this confusing and difficult world. Ultimately, It's an invitation to spend eternity with Him in heaven. But the cost for accepting that invitation, the fine print, is that it will cost you absolutely everything you are and have. It will cost your life. Now again, I want to be sure you understand this. I'm not saying that you pay for your salvation with your life, that you pay for the invitation with your life. No, Jesus offers it without cost, without price. It is pure grace. But to take that invitation into your hand, you've got to empty your hand. To accept the life that He offers, you've got to leave behind. You've got to let go of the life without Him. To walk into the banquet room, you've got to walk out of your independent life. You're not earning it. You're not paying for grace. But Jesus wants you to understand clearly that it is a choice. It is one or the other. And He wants you to understand that choice, to think it through honestly, and then choose. Now, I like Jesus here. He's tough. He's not begging anyone to follow Him. He, he's not trying to manipulate and pressure. He's not trying to use sales technique on you. He's not trying to, 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 to do anything other than just say, here it is. I'm laying it out in front of you. You look at it. And you choose. Now, that almost feels like he doesn't care. Yeah, you choose. It's nothing to me. But that's not the fact that's why I want to just quickly read the next two parables even though they fit better with what follows I want to bring them in here starting in verse 1 of chapter 15 now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered this man welcomes sinners and eats with them then Jesus told them this parable Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent." Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In response to the criticism of the Pharisees, who, who, who honestly believe that God didn't care. I mean, if you get your act together and follow, God will probably accept you if you do it well enough. But He doesn't really care. And especially if you've failed. If you're a sinner, He doesn't care about you at all. Well, Jesus just needs to set that straight. So He tells these two stories. The first one about a shepherd who cares so much for that one lost sheep that he leaves the other sheep out in the open country. And He goes looking for that sheep, even putting the other sheep at risk. You see, and that's the way God's heart is, that that He cares so much. He's willing to take risks. He's he's willing to do what it takes for you, that one sheep, even at great risk. You see, Jesus would have risked coming to this earth even if it was just to save only you. That's, That's who God is. That's God's heart. That's His passion for you. And then the other story is about a, a woman who loses one of her ten coins. In those days, the mark of a married woman was ten coins on a chain that she wore across her forehead as part of her, her head covering. This was, was very similar to our you know, engagement and wedding ring. This was a gift from the, 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 the groom or the groom's family. And somehow this woman lost one of those coins. And she is desperate. She is searching relentlessly for that. She, she lights a lamp. She's on her hands and knees. She sweeps her dirt floor and sorts through, sifts through the, the pile of, 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 of dust and stuff she, she uh, sweeps up. She looks in every hole and corner and crack until she finds that coin. And when she finds it, she explodes in, in relief and in joy. You see that? Is how God feels when one sinner repents. That's how God feels when one person counts the cost and decides to follow Jesus. See, in laying this out in front of you, saying, you choose, Jesus isn't being indifferent. It's not that he doesn't care. He cares intensely. But he is modeling what he is calling us to do. He is going to do the right thing. The loving thing even at the risk of you rejecting it. He has created us with free will. He is honest about the cost, knowing full well that some will say, that's too much, I don't want it. But he is willing to take that risk rather than manipulate and lie and compromise himself. Now lest any of you still think that he doesn't care, that he's somehow indifferent, you need to remember that he suffered and died to give you that choice, to give you the option. His heart aches for you to make the right choice. He paid the ultimate price because he cares that much and he wants that much for you to join him at the feast. So think about it carefully. Read the fine print Consider the cost and make your decision. Make the the greatest decision of your life. Choose to accept the invitation. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, thank You that You love us enough to be honest to to lay it out for us. I know that I would... Don't really want it to be this way. I, I want it to, as soon as, as I choose to follow you, for everything to get easy and happy, and and not have any problems, not have any conflict in my life. But just the opposite, it seems to be true, that as soon as, as we follow you, our life becomes uh, riddled with conflict, with complexity in our relationships, and that's hard, Lord. That hurts thank you that you aren't playing games with us you tell us that up front lord as we think about not following you i'm reminded of, of what peter said when you asked if he was going to leave and he said where else would we go you are the the only one who has words of life and we need you we want that life pray for each person here you would open their eyes they would see clearly the cost of following you they would see clearly the cost of resisting You, that they would be willing to put everything at risk, to give up everything to have You. Lord, we uh, confess that, that even that decision it, it is beyond us. Without Your Spirit giving us faith to trust You to make that decision, I pray You would fill each person here. Open our eyes. Give us ears to hear, I pray in Your name. Amen.